Hello and welcome. This is a new spin on autism. Answers. And I'm Lynette Louise, your story teacher host. Today is going to be the most amazing day. You know how I always tell you we're going beyond awareness and into answers and that I am the one host that will boldly go where no host has gone before and actually make up crap in order to actually help you instead of leave you swimming in this world of confusion that autism so often leaves people in. Well, today we are going to answer some stuff that most people don't like to talk about. I figured with Valentine's Day coming, we ought to maybe delve into romance. X, autism, and how all of that weaves together. Um, don't forget, by the way, that at the end of the show we have stories from the road. And I promise to find a way to make lessons out of all of this. But before we go there, we have to go to my guest. I am so thrilled. Um, and I'm going to preface this. I read something today. It, was, it must be sex day. Because I read something on the internet today. It was a newspaper clipping that you know made its way through all the social media because it's so bizarre. There was a woman, is a woman, who uh, works in a mort. She's a mortician, and she you know she bathes the corpses and cleans them up and readies them for the funeral. And uh, there was a man who had a post-mortem erection, so she these decided to take advantage of that erection, and she had sex with the man. And much to her surprise, the uh, penis ejaculated, and a couple of weeks later, she discovered she was pregnant. So she's in the doctor's office, and, and he's doing a routine examination, and he says, oh, my goodness, you're pregnant. And she goes, oh, my goodness, it's a dead man's child, and tells him, and he calls the police, and, uh, and all of that is probably what most people would call bizarre, horrible, throw judgments all over it. And quite frankly, you know, I'm not going to go there. My place for judgment or my place for concern isn't about a person whose job it is to bathe naked people who does something that we see as peculiar because if you live in and amongst the world of autism, there's all kinds of peculiar out there. My problem is the next piece of information. That is that in a bizarre twist of events, the woman plans on suing the man's estate for child support. And we live in a society where that is actually possible. So I'm going to take us to our next guest, but I want you to think about that I prefaced our guest with this story because the idea here that I want you to hold in your head is what does society enable and why? So hello, this is a special uh, guest who amazingly, I was reading a piece that he wrote also on the internet, and first of all, I was laughing a lot. And um, his name is John Scott Holman. And I was laughing and laughing and reading. And I'm like, OK, has he written anything else? And sure enough, and I, and I read that. And I was laughing. And I'm like, I have to get this guy on as a guest. I put in, you know, would you be a, a guest to do an interview? And that was only a couple of hours. Bang, he's here. This is amazing. I've never had someone respond so quick and be so available and so talented all at one time. So John, would you like to tell the people um, hello and, and 
who you are and what you write about. Hello, people. <laughs> That's um, a good start. I'm uh, I'm uh, John Scott Holman, um, known to uh, friends and family as Scotty, um, and uh, I was diagnosed uh, with uh, autism spectrum disorder um, only about four months ago, but uh, since then I have uh, really jumped into um, the autism world and have been writing uh, quite prolifically on the subject. I uh, write for uh, the homepage of Wrong Planet. I write for Autism Speaks. I recently wrote an article for Forbes magazine. Um, I write for Autism After 16 and a variety of other places I can't think of at the moment. You know what? I think they must have diagnosed you correctly then because you're doing so much all in the same vein and that would be called a repetitious behavior. <laughs> no, I'm just teasing yes. you. <laughs> So, John, the reason that, that I really wanted to talk to you is because of the one article that I was reading where you were discussing that, yes, uh, autistic people grow up and we do have sex. And you were talking about how you were undiagnosed. And so here you were in this place with this sensory issue and trying to deal with the whole sexual arena. And I thought that was a brilliant way to introduce people to the the peculiarities, but also to the concept of, look, we are all bringing our unusual selves to the bedroom, and it can be scary in there. So why don't you just give us a story? We're, we're, story, um, we're a story show. We like to talk about stories. So give me a story from the bedroom, that how it affected your sensory system. How the bedroom affects my sensory system. Um, well, uh, to start with, um, I think I think that uh, when you when you really do talk to a lot of autistic people about sex, you will find some really really funny and interesting stories. Um, there is there's very there's very little uh, normal socially you know acceptable behaviors. Uh, go on. Um, it's, it's, it's not what you would call a vanilla community. But, oh, um, yeah, yeah. No, I know. I mean, my, son, my one son has, a, has an affection for a flag that he keeps underneath his bed, and he's totally in love with it. And when he was a little kid, this is what I mean by story. So when he was a little kid, he would wrap himself naked inside of a ski jacket, and it had to be a particular kind of nylon. And he would, you know, be very sexually aroused by that and, and He'd be in there for a long time, and then he'd come out happy. And uh, he's evolved now to this orange flag that he keeps under his bed. And so, yes, it's peculiar, but it's not so peculiar that only an autistic person would do it. I mean, my goodness, there's all kinds of people who wear rubber suits, and uh, fabric is a common type of sensory, sensual kind of thing for various disorders and various just kind of regular folks who like to have a peculiar bent. So for you, give me, give me something that showed up for you. Okay, stories. Well, this first story I've just got to share, even though it's actually not about me. Um, this was uh, one of my very good friends that I've had for a long time. She has a younger brother with uh, Asperger syndrome. And um, at the time, he was undiagnosed, but, uh, you know, they just thought he was extremely peculiar. And um, he had uh, picked up a new obsession. Um, you know, us Aspies, we get uh, very obsessed with uh, random topics, and um, that's more or less all we think about and talk about. And um, 
his, uh, his new obsession was anime porn. Apparently, there is um, Japanese cartoon pornography, and it's very popular. It's very popular. Um, you don't have to be autistic for it to be uh, <laughs> watched. In fact, uh, one of my ex-husbands was very into anime porn, so I know that you don't need to be autistic. Go on. Oh, oh okay. well, um, he's next now. Um, <laughs> I wonder if that had anything to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so tell um, the story. So anyway... His brother comes home and finds him uh, sitting butt naked on the living room computer, masturbating while watching anime porn, and <laughs> runs upstairs and locks the door. <laughs> and then the next thing you know, it uh, the anime porn is off, and uh, he's going upstairs and knocking on the door, and uh, he, he says in his monotone voice, uh, how much money do I have to give you never to tell anyone about this? <laughs> um, I was, I would get into a lot of situations like that. Um, I remember when I was very, very little, um, my father was playing minor league baseball and um, I believe I was two years old and uh, my parents had been invited to this party and they couldn't find a sitter because I was um, not the easiest child to oversee. And um, they brought me along to this party, and uh, I was taken to this nursery and was sitting in there with the other with the other children. And my parents were out drinking champagne and enjoying the enjoying the evening. And uh, I decided that I wanted to be with the grown-ups because um, the children were really really boring. And I'd been kind of keeping myself in the corner, playing with this uh, this stuffed monkey with this uh, enormously long tail. Um, I like four foot tail on this monkey. Um, I've been playing with that. And uh, anyway, I looked around and made sure no one was looking. And I snuck out of the nursery with, with this monkey. And I waded through the crowd of people at the party. And uh, finally, I uh, reached my parents who were, you know, standing in a circle of people socializing politely. And uh, I uh, put the monkey's tail between my legs and uh, cleared my throat and declared, everyone, everyone, Look at my wonderfully long penis. <laughs> at two years old. <laughs> okay, so let's let's break this down. Autism has a social, a communication, a repetitious behavior, and a sensory aspect. So, your friend, when he was uh, being inappropriate on the computer, I would call that social. Uh, you bursting out and saying something. Although at two years old, most kids will say anything. But that's communication. So uh, repetition. Oh, did I say two? I meant twenty. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> very good, very good. Um, so <laughs> let's let's look at sensory and repetition. So one of the things I want to mention is that so you were talking about when you were a little kid being inappropriate with sex, and um, I mentioned that my one son was very into this fabric. And I have to say that as I travel around the world and I work with autism everywhere. Many, many, many children, male and female, that have autism are very fixated on their genitalia. And they have, you know, they, just like any other fixation, they get very, very involved and it's hard to break their attention to it. And parents uh, can feel very embarrassed by this and think it's their, 
that they are the one with the child who does this and no other, none of the other kids are doing it and they don't want to tell anybody. And, you know, and they're like, if the child acts out like in the grocery store, they have to rush them to the car. And So I want to give a piece of advice right now. First of all, you're in good company. The majority of the kids are doing this. Not, it's not a small percentage. It's a larger percentage. Um, and it's just something to teach to and be comfortable with. My most, I, I, I would say that probably at least 50% of the time when I'm working with children, at some point I say these exact words. Oh, actually, when you're playing with a friend, it's not, it's not that good to touch your penis because it makes your friends uncomfortable. So I prefer you don't touch your penis when you're playing with me because we're friends. And you do that when you're by yourself. And if they keep playing with their penis, I say, I tell you what, you, you can stay here and play with your penis. I'm going to leave. If you want to play with me, I'll come back when you're done because friends don't do that. That's something that you need permission for. And I might say that to a 5-year-old, a 6-year-old, a 7-year-old. Uh, this is a disorder where they don't always put the social pieces together. So help, help, help. Just tell them. It's no big deal. Just Tell them what the rules are. Tell them and do it and do it in the manner in which you did, very, very directly and without judgment. Exactly. I think it is far too easy for parents to believe that they can blame and shame their way to a better child, that if their child feels guilty for a certain activity, they won't do it. Well, we have to remember that children are like little sponges and it, it and especially autistic children are hypersensitive to all kinds of emotional stimuli. And their, if their first impression of sexuality is, is something dirty to be ashamed of, something, something that will warrant a punishment, that's going to have an impact on the way they perceive sex as they, as they mature. And that's why it's incredibly important to have very open communication as early as possible so that no feelings of shame or inadequacy are attached to the subject because otherwise eventually they're going to go out and they're going to start having sex and they're not going to be comfortable talking to, about it to someone who may be, off, they may be able to offer better advice than, you know, the kid they sit next to in class. Absolutely. And so let's make up a story. Let's, and I'm not saying that this is what happened for the woman that I started telling you about in the name of the one that's the mortician, but let's just make something up. Let's show what can happen when you throw judgment at somebody because this is a very, very, very big deal and a big, important point. So let's say you have a little girl and she's got a sensory problem maybe uh, or maybe she's autistic or whatever and she's involved and she's so fascinated with um, her genitalia and she and she finds hard objects and rubs them against her genitalia and then you start shaming her and she has to hide it and the next thing you know she's a grown-up because people grow up and she's high-functioning enough to get a job but it's a weird job so now she works with corpses and she hides who she is and she's hidden who she is day upon day upon day upon day but she's a woman and she has wants and she has needs and she has urges and let's say she's washing a man and his penis gets hard and it's very much like when she saw this inanimate object that she was so fascinated with as a child. I'm not saying that's how it happened, but I am saying the judgment pushes people into places where they're hiding and then they do stuff that maybe would never have happened. 
Oh yeah, I think I think the AIDS the AIDS epidemic is a perfect example. You know, you will hear um, you know obviously very bigoted and intolerant people make remarks about how you know God created AIDS um, to wipe homosexuals, uh, African Americans, and drug addicts away. Um, it's important to remember that throughout history, you know, any form of um, transmittable disease hits minorities hardest first because they don't have the access to the appropriate health care, the appropriate information, or they're doing what they're doing in hiding for fear of the law, um, for fear of being judged. And um, as a result of that, they don't have access to healthy, positive, productive information, life-saving information in many cases, because it's almost as if, as a society, we're denying that they are worth that information. Awesome. Okay, I have to give this little talk in the middle. So, hello, you are listening to a new spin on autism, Answers, and are we throwing answers at you today? I am having so much fun here. I'm talking with John Scott Holman. He's a writer. He's a recently diagnosed um, Aspie. Uh, he's just uh, totally intelligent and totally fun and totally interesting. I'm having a great time. Before I go back to him, though, I want to remind you that at the very end, we're going to bring it all together with stories from the road. And we're back with you, John. So let's... That is like very dramatic what you, what you do there. <laughs> I'm pretty I dramatic. <laughs> you know what my kids, my kids, grandkids actually call me drama instead of grandma. They call me drama because I'm dramatic. So drama. thank you for noticing. <laughs> John, I want you to tell me a sensory story because I did read it, and I want you to just pick up on either smells or something when you went to have sex. Okay, so you've had sex, right? Yes. Yeah, okay, so you've had sex. The first oh, no, my mom's going to hear. Okay. <laughs> well, don't tell her you were on. <laughs> so, or, or, you know, distract her the, during this part. So uh, you've had sex. When you went to have sex, was, was there any problem with smell or sight or touch? Any of that? Um, yeah, there, there can – I mean, I've had, you know – more than one sexual partner, um, okay. more than a few, okay. um, and it with each different person, um, it it presents differently. Um, to try uh, it, to to try and illustrate how um, drastically unique the autistic way of processing sensory information is. Um, I remember when I was a little kid, my mom uh, used to make me wear turtlenecks, and I couldn't stand it because I would get this like melty feeling in my stomach and I would start giggling and I would feel just all, all shaky and weird. And um, I would bite and bite and bite on the end of this turtleneck to try and make this feeling go away because I couldn't concentrate, you know? And when I, when I had my very first orgasm, I immediately thought of turtlenecks. <laughs> I love that. Bizarre, right? But no, however my brain is wired, <laughs> that's just, you know, that's, that's what it's like. Um, anyway, I'm going to go put on a turtleneck. I'll be right back. 
<laughs> no, um, no, no, no. Now, now you're with friends, <laughs> and you have to wait and don't touch your penis right now, okay? You have to wait. I don't have to if I've got the turtleneck. <laughs> no, okay, anyway, um, so, so you, you have you know, this feeling. Different people um, are going to, you know, be more or less compatible, and um, it's not even um, autistics. Um, they take uh, sexual chemical compatibility to an entirely different level. Because um, uh, I've, I've noticed, you know, people people really will have very distinct pheromones, and um, the feeling of their skin can be pleasing or, you know, unpleasant. Um, really, it uh, for a long, long time, I did not uh, enjoy sex like I knew I should have been. I, every, I, it was really almost more of something that I just, that I just wanted to get it over and done with because um, I would be so distracted by so many things that I just couldn't concentrate, you know, and I couldn't figure it out. And then I, I eventually, I got to thinking of it um, like music. And I thought, you know, the... The intensity has to build and build and build and then level off a little bit and then build and build and build and you know there it, it has to be musical it has to be gripping you know and it has to be this this shared music and you have to be you know two different instruments trying to make the the same music and with that idea in my head I started using that as kind of a meditation to um, to push out a lot of the sensory distractions. And then I started coming closer and closer to, to the experience that most people describe when they talk about sex, you know, the feeling of, of connection and, you know, that, um, that feeling of time, you know, slows down and, you know, you, you lose yourself in that moment and you're not thinking of anything else. I had to work really, really hard to get that, <laughs> Wow, you know, I mean, yeah. If the no, if the comforter that... wasn't heavy enough, you know, or if if there was a weird nightlight I didn't like, I mean, whatever it was, it was like I just couldn't, I just couldn't focus on that, you know. And then there'd be times where I would be with a partner, you know, and, and everything would be fantastic, and they would be, you know, they would be just overjoyed, and this is so great. And then the next time around something would just not be right and they couldn't figure out why why I seemed distant or uninterested you know um and a lot of the times it was it was sensory um sex can really be a sensory nightmare but you can also become accustomed to um any any sensory input um you just kind of get a tolerance for it i would i have to tell you that the metaphor or analogy of it being like music is probably the most beautiful and useful knowledge I've heard in a long, long time. We think that if people in the in relationship, whether it's, I mean, that was romantic, and that was a great description of how the very bizarre and ridiculous act of sex, how it can transform into something romantic and loving and beautiful, and the music concept is 
very, I mean, you can imagine the harmonics and the building and the orchestration of it and how you can become one note at the end. I think you just did a great, it was a great gift you just gave. That, that, if somebody who's having challenges with their sensory system, if they can find, um, if they can find a way of holding on to that idea, I think you may have helped many, many people just with that. That was really awesome. I think my biggest issue with with sex for a long time is that, um, you know, uh, when you watch movies and everything, um, you know, uh, studio, go to a theater kind of movies, not like a Yeah, adult. I understand. It's not anime porn. <laughs> um, you know, there's sex, sex is very much mythologized, you know, and um, I think my first sexual experiences, I just, I thought, I kept thinking to myself, this is bizarre, but I kept thinking to myself, you know, if there was an alien invader hiding over in my closet watching me doing this, I would probably look like those monkeys screwing behind glass at the zoo. Yep. Like, you would. I just couldn't <laughs> believe how biological it was, you know? Like, it was just kind of messy and, you know, this kind of animalistic. And that really, really bothered me for a long time because I, I had, I, I had this, I had a, an absolute aversion to, you know, um, anything that was um, outside of my control. You know, um, mm-hmm. I, I had to have control of my environment completely. And um, I learned that the, the the key to sex for me was um, well practice and. Uh, a great deal of communication, very open and honest communication and not being, not being afraid to discuss anything with your partner. And um, in the process of doing that, you know, the more you do it, the more you talk about it, I found that I could learn to let go of my ego. And um, while, you know, while having sex after, you know, a certain amount of time I got to where I could lose myself in that moment, you know, and then all these tiny little details that would normally occupy my mind, you know, kind of all blurred together into that, that musical feeling. And then I was just concentrating on, on the rhythm of, of our bodies, you know, and just kind of, kind of guiding that music and, and it became a, it became a form of meditation, you know, and then um, I started really liking it and, and having a lot of, a lot of fun, you know, but um, I think many, you know, many people that I've been with, uh, they always find it very, very refreshing because I don't, I don't play games, you know, I don't, um, I, I come out and I say what I'm feeling, what I'm thinking, what I'm needing, what I, what I feel like needs to be discussed and, you know, I don't, I don't uh, creep around the issue. I just jump right in there. And I tell you what, it's a lot easier when you get all that stuff out of the way as early as possible. Oh, I agree. And you know what else? I really, really appreciate that you have a willingness to discuss this because it's such a huge part of who we are as adults. And we, we just have to get better at preparing children, especially children that have any kind of Uh, brain challenge, it's not just about autism. It's about can you make sense of this kind of veiled information that's passed around? 
you know, I remember when I was, um, I had my own sensory issues and stuff when I was a kid and, and logical processing issues. And I remember when they gave us this talk at school and they, you know, the ladies up there and they think they're helping us so much and, and they're saying, you know, they answered a question, is it okay to touch yourself? And, and she says, um, you know, she reads the question. She says, yes, it's perfectly natural to touch yourself. And I put my hand up, you know, and she's like, yes. And I'm like, and I want to cry and I want to scream and I'm all full of all these feelings. I'm like, what are you talking about? Of course I touch myself. I have to wash. When I wash, I touch myself. Why is this even a question? And everyone in the auditorium is staring at me, and I'm making a fool, you know, I'm like swallowing my foot and then chewing on my leg. And, you know what I mean? Like, I'm just going farther and farther with this frustration because I know they're not saying something. I haven't discovered masturbation. I don't know that there's anything about feeling good because nobody uses those words. They just talk about invisible sperm and all these things. And I just needed somebody to say, oh, well, we're talking about intimate touching in a way that feels good, that is closer to sex. It would have been simple. I could have then got more information later. But instead, I was left high and dry with everybody afraid to put words to things. And I was completely lost. And I think that this is common. And I think it leads to all kinds of acting out that then leads to police get called, I mean, it, it can be ugly. The, um, Marlena Dietrich uh, once said, in Europe, sex is a fact. In America, sex is an obsession. Anytime, anytime you, you take something and you make it forbidden and, and you, you um, put all this shame and judgment on people that do do it, People feel terrible until one person, one person will step up and say, you know what, I don't care. And then that's when the forbidden fruit, you know, really, really becomes friendly. And that's what, that's what people want. They, they want to taste that fruit. And they haven't been properly guided and they haven't been educated in order to know how to go about that. And, you know, they're working with an education that they've received from locker rooms and, you know, um, playboys and, um, you know, just, just a, a, very, a very limited inferior education that influences the way they treat women, that influences the way women treat men, men treat men. Um, and it's, it's really, really terrible, I think. I think that there are so many forms of neuroses, and you know, I'm not, I'm not a Freudian by any means, but uh, I, I do think that many, many, many forms of uh, neuroses that really, really harm our society um, are the result of, of uh, poor, poor sexual education um, in childhood. You know, um, yes, feeling, being made to feel ashamed, being made to feel different. Um, it's just, it's an incredibly, it's an incredibly masochistic, you know, we've got this society that we're absolutely and utterly obsessed with sex because it's bad. <laughs> Not only that, but when you're dealing with somebody who's autistic, you might have to explain and teach, um, take all the judgment out, explain and teach over and over and over again, and that from one stage to the next, and, and 
and make it more sophisticated, more sophisticated as you go. And so often in our world, it's sort of like, here, I'll give you the sex talk, and now you're done, and now you know. Well, actually, no. It, it requires processing and learning and, and experimentation. And it should be that there's an open door of communication between parents and their children, especially if they're children that are challenged and they need somebody who they can rely on to not judge them as they learn. Um, I'm going to have to close, and I want to find out from you, because you're, um, you're speaking out on a bunch of things. You're, you're, you're talking out about you know, what it was like to be undiagnosed and, and different things. And I picked on this subject with Valentine's Day coming in because it needs to be talked about. But I want to know from you before we say goodbye, what, with all the writing you're doing and the way you're trying to um, speak out, what do you want to see happen? What, what's your heart uh, goal or passion or the change you want to make in the world? What's, try to narrow it down for me and tell me what you're trying to make happen. Well, basically, um, for many, 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 many centuries, People have kind of toiled under the delusion that everyone has a brain that works basically exactly how theirs does, and that they have free will um, to make choices. Okay, hallelujah that you said that. Okay, go on. <laughs> and, and, that, and that if somebody makes a choice that is not the choice they would have made, why they intentionally made a bad choice, and now we must judge them. And that's not that's – not science. That's not, that's not factual. Every, every thought, every behavior, every, everything we say, everything we do, our, our entire lives are the, pro, are, are the result of our specific neurological makeup and environmental conditioning. And I think that is so key to learning to accept and live peacefully with people and to not judge and condemn. Because if you there's, there's, there's a quote from the film La Règle de Joux uh, by Jean Renoir. Um, it says, there's only one thing in this world that is truly terrifying, and that is that everyone has their reasons. I and that. that quote had such an impact on me because I got to thinking about it, and I said, if I have the exact mind of this person over here that I think is really lousy, if I had their exact neurological makeup, if I had experienced every single element of their life from birth on, I would be making the exact same decisions that I'm judging right now because I would be that person. Exactly. And it just, it, it, it really shook me up. And then I began to see, I began to see the world differently. I began to see the way people are completely off base. Our whole, our whole social structure is, is completely, it's completely wrong. It's, it's you know, based oh, oh, on a lot of hocus-pocus. It's based on, you know, a lot of taboos. And, I mean, you know, okay. <laughs> our nation's prison systems are filled up with, you know, bad, bad people. The majority of those just have a drastically different neurological makeup. Um, you know, we tend to think of, of um, you know, sociopaths as bad people. Well, guess what? They didn't ask to have the neurological wiring that we, that we label sociopathy. So I, I think I really, I really want to promote this, this idea of neurodiversity 
which, which is a fact more than any kind of a political statement, in hopes that um, by recognizing how inherently different and unique every human mind is, people will find it in their hearts to, to, try and, to try and empathize, to try and understand rather than making snap judgments. And if they can't empathize, to just throw up their arms and say, well, it's beyond my understanding, but, you know, that still gives me no right to judge. Well, no kidding. I mean, you know what's interesting is that you almost brought us all the way, in fact, you did bring us all the way back to how I started with this story in the news about this lady, because it's so bizarre to me that um, I'm not saying that I think that it's it's a cool idea to have uh, sex with a dead person, but I'm pretty sure that the dead person didn't mind. And Well, hey, I think Michelangelo did it, didn't he? Or was that Da Vinci? You know, and even if somebody else does something that doesn't necessarily make it something I want to do, but it doesn't. What's the deal here? That what bothers me about it isn't isn't whether or not necrophilia is okay. What bothers me because I don't want to get into something like that and a discussion like that. What bothers me is not about what she did and who knows her story and who knows how she ended up you know, making this choice. And it, like I said, it really didn't hurt the guy. What bothers me is that there's even any remote possibility in our society that she could sue for child support because he also isn't responsible and neither has his estate. I mean, it's bizarre that we have a world that puts all the laws and all the rules in all the wrong places. Well, at, at least he didn't... Uh walk out on her right after the finish. <laughs> so, neurodiversity, but we like them alive. Okay. <laughs> you know what? You were so awesome. I really have enjoyed this, um, this interview, and I'm sorry that we can't keep talking. Would you come back another time? Sure. It would be wonderful. It would be wonderful. Thank you so much. And I want you to tell the people how they can uh, follow you or, or find out more about you or, or some, some way for them to connect in case they just really, really want to see what you're up to. Okay. Well, um, I have a Facebook fan page, uh, John Scott Holman, H-O-L-M-A-N. Um, I, uh, you can check out uh, my column on wrongplanet.net. Um, uh, I've got uh, an article in uh, Forbes, and um, I write for Autism Speaks official blog and um, Autism After 16. That's all awesome. of which are linked in my Facebook fan page. So that would probably just be the, be the best. Just the easiest way to go to the Facebook fan page. And um, is it Scott with two T's or one? Two T's. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much. And uh, I'm going to friend you or fan you or whatever it is. And I'm out there too. So please stay in touch. You're marvelous. I hope you, I hope you get to have a really loud voice and everyone listens. Oh, well, thank you very much. Right now I'm actually sitting in a walk-in closet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> trying to keep the sound behind you. I don't, I don't you. know why. That must be an autistic thing. I, I felt like being in a walk-in closet would help me concentrate. Well, if it's an I autistic... don't have sex in walk-in closets. <laughs> well, it's probably okay. You know, if it's a walk-in closet, there's enough room. And I have done many a radio interview in the closet. So if it's autistic, I'm joining you there. Thank you so much, John. All right. Thank you very much. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. So that was John Scott Holman telling it like it is. One of the things that he kept talking about was blaming and shaming. I love that. That's a really quotable term. 
blaming and shaming. And I was thinking, how not judgmental are you? Good question, huh? How not judgmental are you? Because most of us walk around saying, oh, I'm not judgmental. I'm not judgmental. And then we say something judgmental almost immediately. So here's my question. Can you not judge the necrophiliac when you imagine it, when I talked about it? How many of you rolled your eyes? Come on. Okay. So we think we're accepting. We're not always. Um, I'm not going to have a great guest giveaway today because that was such a fun show, such a wonderful show that we just got into it for way too long. So my great guest giveaway is going to have to wait till next week, although that's a great one. I, I hope you tune in. Um, it is time for Stories from the Road. <laughs> okay. I actually am doing a double story. Um, this first one is from Maryland. It's a child that I worked with. She was a young girl when I met her of about six, I think. And she was very attracted to her genitalia. Uh, thought it was beautiful in the mirror. I loved to manipulate it. Spent hour upon hour um, basically touching herself or pushing her body up a up and down against uh, different corners of the room, you know, like on the chair or the desk or whatever. And uh, they were doing a very accepting program, and uh, they, the whole family was trying to figure out, you know, and the, the various people working with the child were trying to figure out what to do, you know, in order to be accepting of this situation. And so they're in the room working with the child, and the child is behaving this way. And I said, well, why don't we put her in... Um, you know, in, in some pajamas that you can sort of tie at the top, like footed pajamas. So she can't be doing that the entire time, at least not skin to skin. And um, and it was so interesting because everybody had been trying to decide whether they should mimic this or ignore this or distract this. I mean, it had been a discussion for over a year. And the mother said, well, but if we do that, how, how is she going to get that feeling? And I thought, well, you know, she'll figure it out. <laughs> but we want her to do it in private. And so I spent a goodly amount of time explaining. And this is an important point because this is not unique to this mom. Okay? This is not, I'm not, I never tell a story to make fun of somebody. I tell a story to illustrate that we're all in the same boat together. Understand that. This mom was just trying to be accepting. But I want you to know right now, acceptance does not mean not teaching. On the flip side of that coin, I was working with a child who was constantly, uh, this, this one was a boy, and he was constantly trying to touch everyone's breasts. I mean, it was a huge issue. He was constantly trying to touch breasts. And, and you know, the grandmother starts calling him a dirty, yucky boy. And and he gets all upset, and he so he starts squeezing breasts even more. And next thing you know, he's grabbing other people's groins. And really, this was a sensory urge he had. But because of the way he was being reacted to, and then he was controlled, and then it turned. This was a, a more controlling kind of therapy, their program. By the time I came along, it was a kind of a sexual violence going on. And again, it was all about this issue of teaching, acceptance, judgment, being confused. 
In this case, I would like to say that the answer is teaching does not mean judging first, blaming and shaming. That is not teaching. That is exactly what it, it sounds like. It's blaming and shaming. And what you teach by that is to do it more. It's, it's been known for centuries. Kids do it more. They may not do it in front of you, but they'll do it more. So if you don't want uh, to be teaching it, don't be blaming and judging. I can't do it, try to be. My story from the road today is like a sort of like a quilt, you know, a patchwork quilt. A little bit of this and a little bit of that. I could even throw in my son if you want, because he had to learn this one step at a time. And I remember we were at a resort and they came and they were, you know, all of the authorities of the resort came to me and they were all upset and they think he's going to be a rapist because they find that he's take, found a Polaroid camera of the uh, bird watchers club and he's locked himself away and taken a picture of his penis and i said well he probably just wanted to see what it looked like with a zoom lens no i didn't say that but i wanted to okay so the point is he was socially inappropriate he was autistic these children are driven by sensory lack of social understanding lots of things just teach don't lose it don't don't future and imagine that it's going to be horrible. Just go, oh, where are we at now? And teach to the next step. I'm going to close this show by making a point of what I began with. I kept saying that what bothered me most about the story in the news about the lady that had sex and got impregnated by a corpse, which is bizarre at best, that what really bothered me was society, the our society, the society we live in, because it is possible that she might be able to sue for child support. And what I mean by society, so what's the definition of that? In my definition, society is made up of the children that we taught. And then they grew into adults and made rules based on deflection. The society I live in right now, when I look around, has all its rules based on deflection. And it uses shaming and blaming. So I really love that um, my guest used that term. And I believe the reason for that is to separate us, to keep us separate, keep us pointing at each other, and prevent us as a, as a nation, as a, as a global community, from reaching the crescendo of harmonics that would make us strong. Think about it. I'm Lynette Louise. This is a new spin on autism, Answers, and uh, thank you for being here. Without you, I'd just be talking to myself. I'm